0: beyond a certain scale it becomes about creating the conditions the environment for success rather than individually succeeding that level of abstraction is quite uncomfortable especially when you're an engineer you get a great dopamine hit from your build working or your pr being approved when you take the step back from that direct very rewarding cycle of work the thing you work on next is both abstracted and much longer term
1: you're listening to this much i now. Podcast. welcome everyone today we have a very exciting guest on the podcast mary williams cto of Pleo. and today i'm really excited to chat with mary partially because it's one of these stories that is just absolutely amazing i'll let her tell it but it's also the achievements she's been able to do on behalf of plio Obviously, with financial services being what they are today and some of the challenges that we have in terms of uh, cybersecurity, we're going to explore a little bit about how she managed a team at the same time as managing the risks associated with running a fintech company. So with that, welcome, Mary. Hi, thanks for having me. So loving starting with the beginning of your life, whether it be college, whether it be school, whether it be whatever. But tell me a little bit about where you think your life really started taking meaning.
0: Yeah. So I was super lucky. I got to go to the oldest girls high school in the country in South Africa. And that really put my life on a different trajectory than it had been on. So there's this saying that working class parents tend to think of intelligence as something that a kid just has and they don't reward hard work. They don't talk about it's, you know, you're almost better by not studying and doing well than you are by putting the work in. And I was that kid. I went off to this high school and it was the first time that somebody had been like, yeah, you got 95 percent. But if you'd studied at all, you could have got 100. We're disappointed in you. And so the kind of hard work ethic was really instilled into me by this place called Rhenish. that my wife and I now run a little charity that supports girls to go to that school because I think it made such a big difference in my life. And there's a way of me telling my story, which is to be like, I was a hardware hacker. I got into electronics and stuff like that really early. I built part of South Africa's first satellite as a teenager, which I, my advice to all parents is don't let your kids do anything cool when they're young. Because I sold it something that went into space when I was 16 and it's all been fucking downhill since then. But the other way I can tell my story is I was a real polymath. I was just as involved with like backstage theater and Latin and history as I was with maths and sciences and everything else and one of the real benefits of the South African schooling system for me was I didn't have to make the early choices that you do in the UK so my wife's an architect she had to know that she wanted to be an architect and to choose maths physics and art as her a levels like pretty young I got to do like 10 subjects all the way up until my final year of high school which was super super useful for me and then I came to the UK and my choice at the time was between going to film school going to Oxbridge to read classics or going somewhere to read computer science. And I realized that with overseas university fees, my chances of paying the money back at either film school or classics were pretty limited. And so I went to the University of Bath and studied computer science with business and had a great time there, found it super practical and pragmatic, which was what I was looking for. They have a great program where you spend a year in industry in the middle of your degree as well. And so I started out really early actually in my first year of uni I did a summer internship with Procter and Gamble and then I stayed there I was there for the first 10 years of my career and they created a full-time placement year for me so that I wouldn't go somewhere else and I worked for them part-time during term time and all this kind of stuff and that really helped because like I said I was paying overseas fees it was a pretty pricey proposition and before I went to p I was working like five jobs I was a bouncer I was working at the football club at the weekend as a steward I was a bodyguard to the chairman of Bristol City Football Club for a while and I was a bartender and a student tutor as well and so getting this job at PNG meant I could just do a reasonable number of part-time jobs rather than trying to do five at the same time. And then I, I spent the next 10 years of my career at Procter & Gamble, which was a really great environment. It's really well known for building up leaders. And so it was brilliant from a leadership development perspective and pretty terrible from a technology perspective. I used to joke that we weren't even, you know, it's not that we weren't bleeding edge, we were scabbing or healing edge. That was how far behind we tended to be. And so I learned a lot about leadership and about management and getting things done at, at PNG. But after 10 years, I eventually left to get closer to the tech again. And then I was... Thinking about whether I would go to Google or Amazon or somewhere like that. And then this guy called Tom Loosemore rang me up and said, Hey, we're going to fix government. Come help us do that instead. And then he rang my friends and told them to tell me that I could join Google anytime, but GovUK was only going to happen once. <laughs> so he and they uh, convinced me, and I joined the government digital service uh, straight out of PNG back in 2012. So I was in that early first cohort where they went from the Beta that had proven that Agile might be a good way to deliver government services, to then into the fully-fledged team that built Gov.UK. And that was my first big scaling gig. So I built the team that built Gov.UK. We went from 30 to 300 people in nine months, which was ridiculous. And I will never do that rapid 10x again uh, if I have the choice. But had a really great time doing it. And seeing how impactful that modern way of working could be in this arena that was just so behind right like you re- you all remember the well maybe people are too young many won't remember DirectGov, the bright orange website that was just impossible to use you couldn't get anything done and GovUK is just such a huge improvement on what used to be right uh, and so that was a really cool thing to be a part of but i was only there for a year because at the end of that year i got my disability diagnosis so i have something called Ellis Dunlos syndrome it's a um Weird genetic, rare disease, it's collagen defect. So all of my collagen in my body, it's like the blueprint my body's got is wrong. So it, it creates enough, but it's all bad quality. So all my joints dislocate. I have a whole bunch of problems with my nervous system and all those kind of things. And so I had a, a pretty tough time getting that diagnosis and then took a bit of time off to deal with it. And then around a few different roles that weren't right for me and then eventually landed in a, a health tech startup that I don't even have the name of on my CV anymore because it went so horribly wrong. <laughs> we collectively resigned over ethical concerns um, was what happened in the end. Uh, but that team I built stuck together, formed a little product studio, and then Marks and Spencer were our first uh, big client when we built that what was called Balloon Studios. And then they slowly convinced us to go in-house essentially. So I became... Uh, De facto CTO for MarksandSpencer.com. I then went from there to Moo and then to Monzo, then to a company called Helix that did AI-driven drug discovery, but I largely went there because they were working on COVID and at the time I thought that was the way I could be most useful. And then, yeah, last year joined Plio. So this is my fourth or fifth CTO role, fifth, I suppose. But I've been a CTO in a tiny first 10 people kind of setting and also in a couple of thousand people setting and seeing how different those roles are uh, i feel like i'm waxing lyrical a bit though so stop me well and, uh...
1: no actually that is probably one of the absolute best sort of it's almost like one of the best directors on hollywood just totally just narrated the story so <laughs> i was gonna pick jerry bruckheimer i don't know if that was controversial or not or steven spielberg george luke's my personal favorite just because i love star wars but yeah that's very well shared thank you for that and and so much to unpack first of all thank you for gov uk so I didn't experience the previous website because I only moved to the UK about 15 years ago, but uh, I will say that it's such a joy to use now that I know it's you that helped the lead build that. It's also even more rewarding, um, <laughs> but you know, it's really interesting to hear your story because as we unpack it, you know, there's a lot of little nuggets there for people who are going through their own journeys, right? If we look at where you are today in your fifth CTO role, that's, you know, quite an achievement by any standard. Uh, and across the breadth of companies that you've worked in. But let's just start off with a little bit from the very early, early days when you mentioned the schools, right? And it sounds to me like a growth mindset is really what you were referring to. It's like the school basically impose on you a growth mindset. One of the challenges that I'm having with colleagues uh, or with founders or other is distinguishing between somebody who wants to work just because you know we all want to work, but somebody who has a growth mindset. And so as you have taken that lesson from early days, and as you've grown in your career, do you find that your team, the one that stuck together, that became Balloon Studios and all this do you feel like they all have that growth mindset or do you find that there is a ratio of you can have two or three people with a growth mindset? Because obviously the bigger the team, it's harder to make sure everyone's identical in the way they think. But just walk me through the team composition because clearly you have a view on what it takes to succeed.
0: So I think technology is so interesting as an area because it changes so much. You have to grow to keep up. Like it's one of the areas where you most have to stay current in order to just keep being able to do your job. Everybody needs to be able to learn and be able to keep up in that way. But I think that what you're alluding to is this kind of ability to turn all of the experience you have into an accelerated learning journey. That is what stands, that makes people stand apart. So the people who grow the most aren't the ones who spend the most days out at, you know, conferences are amazing and so is reading and so is all these other things. But the people who can apply that learning and get the daily deliberate practice out of it, they tend to be the ones who grow the, the very most. There's a fantastic book called Talent is Overrated, which is all about how skills are developed and how talent doesn't really exist. Like A lot of the things that we think people are just innately good at or not, the research doesn't support that point of view. Obviously, if you're like seven foot tall, you're going to be better at basketball. But, you know, beyond those kind of base physical capabilities, there isn't much evidence for other forms of talent. And so it does seem to be about how much can you turn the experiences that you're having into accelerated learning. Um, And I think that's really interesting. In terms of team composition, I've had a real variety. In that balloon studios, one of the things that was fantastic about it was that everybody was trying to learn and everybody was trying to grow. And they had all joined the the health tech startup because they believed in it, but also because they thought that it would help them develop better in their particular craft. And I think that came out in a very real way. But we were also a team that cared about how we did things. Part of why m brought us in was to show rather than tell that this sort of agile engineering, agile product development methodology could really work. And so we had a product manager from the m side, but then the rest of the team was this little group that had already gelled and were already working really well together, design and ops and engineering and so on. And it was interesting because about half that team had never gone to university, just hadn't had the opportunity or hadn't managed to do so. And it was remarkable how everybody was still able to keep up with each other like they, it didn't make a, a huge difference that they had such disparate backgrounds if anything it helped us that we had such diversity in the, what was a relatively small group
1: yeah i, mean, I'm not sure
0: how I answered your, question. Have I answered your well, we'll,
1: question we'll unpack it further because the thing yeah. is that you're highlighting is you know diversity of, of sort of thought but it sounds though that you had a homogeneous mindset uh, it sounds like everyone in balloon studios had the same mindset of accelerated growth and I want to explore that further, partially because as a company grows, you struggle with how to have everyone, especially when you break the 10. How many people were in balloon studios? Oh, like under 10. Yeah. 10, under 10, right? So under, under 10, 10, you could probably handpick people with the same mindset as you. Beyond that, it becomes a cultural thing. And I'm just curious how you balance taking that accelerated growth culture from that group of 10 to some of the bigger roles that you've had, where you've mentioned you've had even thousands of people, how do you permeate that? Or how do you deal with the imbalance that some people are not gonna have it and yet they're still productive? And I'm just trying to understand how yeah. you've cultures where you worked.
0: Yeah, so one of one of the bits of advice I give to my eng managers is, is to be really clear on what are career levels. So when do you need someone to keep growing and keep developing and keep reaching for hire? And when is it okay to be at that level for a while? So like senior engineer is a career level. You can be a senior engineer for decades and it can be great for you, great for the company. But the reality is even to stay a senior engineer you have to keep up things change in the industry things change in how we work and what we're working on and how we understand the business and all those kind of things and that you have to keep up I, I think when people don't grow they get left behind and that reality that if they don't grow they get left behind is actually a tough one for a lot of people they're not used to the idea that bar is going to be raising every year even if they do nothing not because they're striving but because the environment around them is changing and i think that hyperscale companies just are a super intensified version of that right so like monzo when it was really really growing we went from under a million customers to four million customers in a year and that was a fascinating point in the journey because There were people who were managing to keep up with the scaling and and were developing along with the scaling and going to more and more senior roles. And then there were people who just like it hit a point where no human could have kept up with that scaling. No human could accelerate themselves as quickly as the business was accelerating. And it became a thing to make sure that people didn't feel like they'd failed if they couldn't keep up with what was a... A ridiculous growth curve, a curve that nobody would be able to to keep up with. So I think you permeate that culture of learning in a couple of different ways. You reward people when they learn rather than just when they deliver. Incident reviews are one of my favorite kind of cultural bastions of learning. Making sure that people learn when shit goes wrong is really, really valuable and running good incident reviews. People call them postmortems, but something has to die to do a postmortem. So I prefer like debrief or review or a slightly less loaded term. But yeah, making sure that people do good incident reviews, that we solve the big underlying problems so that we prevent things going wrong again in the future, that any process we have, we're constantly thinking, how could we make this better? How could we make it simpler next time? How could we reduce the load on people? The toil on people, I think, is really valuable. But I don't think that, growth mindset is fixed. I think it's something that can be taught because I think I was taught it. I think I went into that school as someone who was smart and did well despite not working. And I came out of there someone who worked really, really hard and who cared about being held myself to a higher standard than anybody outside of me would ever have helped me to. And that was something that they managed to instill in me. And It's a reality that like, you know, Malcolm Gladwell writes about this in Outliers, that there are what seem to be some class divides in how children are treated and how they're taught. And he talks about how in in the U.S. actually kids from working class backgrounds during term time grow at an accelerated rate compared to their middle class and upper class compatriots. But the summertime is where it changes because the summertime, if you're a working class kid, your parents, they're busy. They're working multiple jobs. You are left alone. When you're a middle class kid or an upper class kid, you're going to museums. You're being taken on enrichment activities. You're off at summer camps. You're doing all of these different things. And that's what um, changes the the trajectory is this constant enrichment and development that happens all, all, all along the way. And so I think that we can sometimes mistake something that is very much a part of a particular class culture as being innate when it is we can help people and help them to learn that approach and to benefit from that approach and it's really rewarding to realize that you've grown to your own personal standard rather than to any external one i'm getting a bit philosophical now though so um... no
1: and it is and that's and that's exactly what i was hoping you would share is that there is something that can be taught here but what's really interesting is the way that you teach it the way that you instill this culture when you join a company sounds like it's a combination of things like rewarding people when they learn. And I'd love to hear more how you do that. And then the incident reviews, which some people call them after action reports as well. And that's a little bit more of a well understood thing. But it is also that you have the firm belief as a leader that it can be taught. And sometimes, you know, that is in of itself a sufficient condition for it to happen because you have faith in people and that they can achieve things if they put their mind to it. So maybe just to finalize this point about sort of building this culture of mindset. um, What do you do to reward people when they learn? I mean, it's kind of a funny one, right? Like,
0: So a lot of what people want is recognition more than reward. They just want somebody to go, hey, I know that was tough, but I really value that you went through it and that you've come out the other side with a new learning. I bet that won't happen again, right? (laughs) And so a lot of it is just talking with people. And, you know, it's the first time a manager has to do a performance improvement plan with someone. It's a tough experience whenever you're doing that kind of thing. And just having that conversation with them to be like, hey, what did you learn? How would you do this differently in the future? How do we make it easier on other people the first time they have to do this as well? So turning that rewarding, turning learning into systemic improvement is also part of it. So when somebody individually learns something, what's the process improvement or product improvement or systems improvement they can make to share that love with the broader group, I think is valuable. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of the way growth mindset gets rewarded is. Faster promotions, bluntly, right? If the more you can learn and and grow and keep up, the faster you're ready for more responsibility for people to take a chance on you and give you new experiences, and for you to get sponsored into those new experiences, I think is very likely. Yeah.
1: Fair enough. So so far, this question, I've been going down the the assumption that we're talking about, let's say, a founder who started a company who's growing his team. But I want to take a, a bit of a side note here, just a temporary one about. Uh, roles that you've taken over more as a restructuring CTO in effect, or or maybe potentially replacing an existing uh, technologist uh, who's in place. And that's a little bit difficult in some cases, because you're having to displace a culture that predated you. And to some extent, you're going to have to upskill people. You're going to have to coach them. And just walk us through some of these roles where you came in and there was already like a pretty embedded team, how you went around Turning that culture around. Maybe they weren't distressed companies in the traditional sense, but there was something there that needed your sort of injection of mindset. How did you do that?
0: Yeah, so I think the thing that I typically do is I I go meet every team and I I tend to ask them three questions. I, I ask them, what are they proud of? What are they worried about? And if I had a magic wand, what should I fix for them? And I learn a lot by doing that. I did it at Moo, I did it at Monzo, I did it at Helix, and more recently at Plio. Um, and I learn a huge amount both about what people hold dear, what they're proud of, what they don't want to lose. And a lot of people are afraid of losing things when somebody like me comes in. They, they, they see it as at best a maturing of the company and at worst a corporatizing of the company. And a lot of people look at my CV and see my 10 years at p and and my time at Vodafone and in government and places like that. And then I turn up in my funny t-shirts and jeans and uh, sneakers and they're a little like, oh, okay, you're not as bad as I expected. You're not the corporate robot I was fearing, at least. But yeah, I I learn a lot about what people hold dear and what they don't want to lose. I I learn a lot about what is already bugging people. And then if I had a magic wand, what should I fix for you is the most insightful. It tells me what is slowing people down, what's frustrating them, what's getting in their way. And I think that I've then taken that information and used it in different ways. If I'm super honest, I think I failed at Monzo. I couldn't get people to see the trouble I knew was coming. I knew that there was pain on the horizon, I'd seen it before, it was going to happen again, and I did not manage to convince people to avoid it. I think we went through a lot of the same growing pains and a lot of the same challenges as they would have done if they hadn't had me there. And I view that personally as a bit of a failure, right? I think I could have done a better job of convincing folks, I could have done a better job of uh, illustrating how much it was going to hurt or... You know, I, somebody shouldn't have to put their hand on the stove to to know that it's hot. And I, I think I didn't do a good enough job of preventing some of the scaling challenges that we encountered while we were there. I think I was useful in some other ways. I think I helped with the Relationship with the regulator and making a development process kind of make sense. You know, I had the language of the big corporates to be able to interpret what was being asked for and what our auditors were interested in and why they weren't seeing what they wanted to. And so that kind of translation aspect of the job, I think I delivered against, but not really preventing the pain of scaling side of things. And so at Plio, I've changed my approach a bit and made it much more of a sort of change management. So, really trying to find the small ways in which people can feel the beginning of that pain and talk them through it and help them through it rather than being like, hey, there's a big thing on the horizon and why won't anybody look at the horizon with me? Which was kind of my frustration when I was at Monzo. And so I think it's going better (laughs) for sure. And I'm finding those smaller ways to help people see the challenges that are coming and the scaling pain that's about to happen. It's also helped a little bit by the fact that Pleo grew by like 600 people in six months in 2022 before I joined. And so they'd encountered some of the scaling pain already by the time I arrived. And I think that made it a little easier.
1: Yeah. yeah, no, fair enough. Fair enough. So if I go back to the main fork, which is for founders, right, rather than a CTO who's coming in, yeah. I think there's obviously lessons to be learned from that experience, right? Because I think you, you can apply both learnings, but if, if we go back to early early, engagements you had where you have been with a small team that has scaled. If, knowing what you know now, you're having a chat with Mary of whatever, 10 years ago, and you're giving her five points of advice. And those five points of advice are on how to take a team where you are the leader, making the technological architecture and product decisions, and starting to hire in different people who are now being given the task of authority of making decisions, whether it be VP of engineering, whether it be product decisions, whether it be architectural decisions and having to let go, but also knowing who to hire, when to hire and what time to hire to make that transition. Cause it's it's gradual, but it's also binary. It's the moment you let go. So what are the five pieces of advice you'd give Mary of, I don't know, pick some date ago?
0: Yeah. So I think the first would be to figure out what you can't stop yourself from doing, which is a very uglily formed sentence, but I think it's the right way to form it. I think people say do what you love, but you can love a lot of things. You Almost anything you're great at, you will love doing. That's what the research shows. Um, I think the more important thing is what can you not leave for somebody else to do? And so I think for some people, that's the technical architecture. For some people, it's technical strategy. For some people, it's leading the team. For some people, it's um, being the, the person who's so embedded with the rest of the executive team that you're steering the whole company. Um, you know, There's a great variation in, in what you can be good at as a CTO. And there's lots of different flavors of CTO as well. But I think being really clear on what you can't give up is the first thing. And the second thing is that Beyond a certain scale, it becomes about creating the conditions and the environment for success rather than about individually succeeding. And that level of abstraction is quite uncomfortable, especially when you're an engineer, especially when you're used to write code, tests pass or fail, like you get a great dopamine hit from your build working, your PR being ready, or your PR being approved, all those kind of things. And when you take the step back from that very direct, very rewarding cycle of work the thing you work on next is both abstracted and much longer term right so creating conditions of success is about like the right purpose and autonomy and mastery and inclusion, all the stuff out of drive, all the, you know, my favorite management book. And I know I'm a nerd for having a favorite management book, but it's first break all the rules, which is this huge Gallup study about what made teams high performing and not what made teams happy, but what made them high performing. But it's a great guide to sort of team happiness as well. And again, it adds up to this kind of purpose, believing in why autonomy, having a say in how, Mastery, being proud of the craft of, of what you do, and then inclusion, feeling like you belong. And so figuring out whether you're the right person to work at that layer of abstraction, or whether you want one of the roles that somebody in the team will have, owning architecture or being a direct line manager or similar is important. The third bit of advice I'd give is that inflection points are really real. So you need to solve the right problems at the right time look for people who are 12 months ahead of you, not people who are 20 years ahead of you. The number of startups that are like, well, Google does it this way. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, call me back when you actually get to the scale that you need to worry about that in that way. (laughs) It's gonna be a while, right? And so finding people who are 12 to 18 months ahead of you on your journey and and learning from them is really important. I'm really open with people that I'm useful when you've got at least 100 engineers you don't need me or want me before you've got at least a hundred engineers. And you probably only want me when you're trying to go from a hundred to 300, right? I'm not, super useful. My instincts are too structured. I'm going to put too much process in a team of 50 for what you actually need. And that doesn't mean I don't adapt to the situation, just means that like my definition of what good looks like is at a certain level of maturity and a certain level of structure. One of the things that's made me happier as a person is sort of facing into that and realizing that there's a certain level of structure and process that is comfortable for me. And part of that's I'm, I'm autistic and I've got ADHD, which is a really interesting Kind of mix in how things uh, affect each other but there's a certain level of chaos that i'm just not the best person for it doesn't mean that it's a bad thing to be at that stage it just means that you need somebody different right what else would i say i would say again when you move away from code and when you get into a bigger team situation communication matters so much communication becomes so much of your job And don't repeat yourself is a great programming principle, but a terrible human communication one. So you need to say things over and over again, and you need to write down why you did what you did. Architecture decision records are one of my favorite things to instill really early at a company so that in three years' time, four years' time, five years' time, somebody who's looking at your code and being like, why does this do what it does? If they can find that architecture decision record that says this was the context And if these things change, you can make a different decision. But if these things are the same, then this weird thing we did is still relevant and it's still important that it was done this way. And then the fifth thing, culture add matters a lot more than culture fit. I think that we get... Say that again. Adding to your culture matters more than fitting with your culture. Culture add matters more than culture fit. I think that early on, it's very easy to see all of the downsides of somebody being different to your current team because you've got this gel and you've got everybody on the same page and you get so much for free when you're 10 people in a room right you get everybody knows what everybody's doing everybody knows the full state of the business nobody has to go to an all hands to know that things are happening right but you get to 1500 people nobody knows anything about what anybody else is doing it doesn't come for free anymore and it's so overwhelming even if you do everything in the open at monzo we were hugely transparent you could find out what any team was doing but it could become your full-time job just to find out what other teams were doing. And that wasn't helpful either. right? And so figuring out what's the right level of information for people is important. But I think also making sure that every time you hire someone new, you say, how are they going to add to our culture? What's going to be different because they're here? How are we going to improve because of them being here? And I think that in an ideal world, we'd have a lot more teams that were really diverse in experience early on, because then the network effect means that that scales, right? People who are different from each other have different networks. They have different friends. They have different colleagues from previous companies. They have, you know, all all of that. And I think we'd have a lot more high-performing, diverse teams if the seed network was more diverse in the first place. But it's really easy to form a company with, you know, your buddies from university or, your colleagues from your last company or or whatever else. And so I don't think it's unforgivable that we have lots of small startup teams that are pretty homogenous, but I think letting it continue too long is really, really, really dangerous. And data shows us that diverse teams are higher performing, more innovative. They're going to leave you in the dust if you don't become like them, right? I've got to a point now where I just don't care about teams that don't care about diversity anymore because I trust the the data. It it tells me that they're going to lose And so I'm quite willing for them to go the way of the dinosaurs. And I focus my time on the teams that already know it's important, but are struggling to make it real.
1: We invested in a company called Sabre a long time ago, and they've now shifted what they do. But one interesting little anecdote that came out from early days is that they would do tests to see how the team would, would work well. And what was ironic about it was that the diversity added to the richness of the thinking in the team. But the only way the team would fail is if the values of the new members were different. So that's a slight distinction between diversity and value. So for example, you needed to have everyone buy into the growth mindset. That is a value. I value growth mindset. That cannot be a diverse thinking because that creates distress in what is effectively the culture, which is a growth mindset culture. But then the other attributes of the people irrelevant. That the well, added, I'd,
0: say, I'd, I'd say beyond that, I'd say relevant like Run. it's relevant to have diversity in that exactly you know, it, it's what it shows relevantly irrelevant I agree, or
1: irrelevantly I agree, relevant
0: <laughs> i i agree 100 i i think you test for value fit values fit culture add yeah. so do, the, do these people believe in the same things that i believe in absolutely and try to make those values something that a broad swath of the population can sign up to right don't make them you know, white supremacist or whatever, right? It's possible to get that wrong, but hopefully most places don't. And then once somebody is aligned with your values, then how are they going to add to your culture? What's the perspective they're going to bring that you don't have yet?
1: And pragmatically speaking, a lot of companies that actually do set out to think about values, like the ones that you have led, The values are, you know, there are engineering values, they are growth and build and and those kind of values, but how they implement it is the distinction between a great company and and a good enough company, right? But I'm just going to sum, I mean, Mary, by the way, like I have to say, like your ability to synthesize your learnings is just amazing. You know, like I've, I've written them down and I just wanted to sort of summarize them for people who are listening. The first one is be clear what you can't give up as an individual the things that you hold on to that you love. Um... And the things that you would obviously feel like my true purpose has been relinquished by letting go of this. The second one is creating an environment for success versus seeking individual success. And you need to make a decision whether you want to be part of the individual success crew or the ones that create the environment for success. And then the next one is solving the right problems at the right time because inflection points are real. You know, knowing what you need to learn from whom, because 12 months is probably the most you can process thereafter. It's probably just wasted of time when you were sharing this point, I was struck by how self-aware you are. You're like, I'm not I'm not useful to you below 100 engineers. I'm probably not useful for more than 300 engineers. And, and that kind of lucidity about your value add is, is super useful. The next one that I thought quite funny was repeating yourself is bad for programming, but super important for human communications. Uh, and I can totally attest to that. You have to repeat yourself many times in hopes that it sort of lands, right? And everyone's on the same page. And lastly, thinking more about adding to your culture rather than sort of trying to fit everyone into one neat pile and we talked about that briefly and so you know that that is brilliant brilliant advice for anybody who's thinking about building out this organization um i wanted to shift gears a little bit and i wanted to go back again back to your early days and i wanted to sort of play around with technology themes right like you know you obviously right now in fintech and and we can talk a little bit about that but you shared early days that you worked with satellites and that was fun. And we started off our chat before we started recording about uh, space. And I just wanted to touch upon certain themes. Um, as a technologist, as a CTO, uh, I'm just gonna throw some themes out there. You pick whichever ones you wanna talk about, but these are sort of, of our era, of our times. There's you know, the role open source plays in CTO's decision-making, how you adapt for cybersecurity challenges and what is it you build and when how you are integrating AI into your organizational development in processes and or products. Space, whether in our lifetimes we will be using it as a platform the way that we think of Raspberry Pi or something else to launch the next big thing. You can also comment whether you think there's aliens or not. It's up to you. And then blockchain, has it had its day and is it just going to be, not, I'm not talking about crypto, but like blockchain as a sort of promise, as a yeah. solution for everything. So yeah, pick whichever ones you want.
0: Um... So l- let's do a couple of easy ones first. So I yeah. think aliens probably exist just because like, the, the statistical likelihood that we're the only intelligent life that's ever evolved seems incredibly small to me. Like they just... Now, whether they want anything to do with us, separate conversation. But I, I think life is very unlikely to look like we expect it to, is probably yeah. the interesting thing. Yeah. Um, I think space as a platform... It doesn't feel super likely right now. I think we've got some extraordinarily high worth individuals who are playing in that world rather than anything else. And maybe something comes of that. But if we look at the platforms that have really changed our world, like the railways, like the Industrial Revolution, those kind of things, they tended to be more for the common good than some of the latest space offerings and investigations and aims tend to be i think we're more likely to end up with a you know even more rarefied set of people out in space that and the rest of us left behind sadly than we are anything else although i you know having had that early interest i do keep up with some of the exploration stuff that's being done some of it's really interesting from a uh, open source point of view I, th- I think open source continues to be really important i, I think what we haven't quite nailed yet is how the giving back works. I think a lot of companies rely a lot on open source, but we're only seeing the larger companies fund people working on it. And so, you know, one of the things that we've done at Playo in the last year is my engineers came to me and were like, hey, we use all these libraries. You can now do like tips through GitHub, basically. Like, can we please just give some money to all these people that we rely on so much? And I was like, yeah, sure. Let's just put a budget against it. And you figure out how we divvy it up between these projects that we rely on. But I think that, you know, Every software team is trying to figure out what is their special source? What's the thing that's uniquely value-added for them to build for their company? And we do that best when we can take all of these components that already exist and these platforms and everything else and build on top of them. So I think it's hugely important that we continue to invest there. I think the giving back model isn't well established yet. And maybe more companies need to think of it as something that they do Yes, they can have it for free, but they should give something towards it, I think is is probably the right way to think of it in the longer run. AI is a really fascinating one. So I'm from an AI background. So after the hardware hacking and the satellites and that kind of stuff, the thing I got into next was AI, largely the sort of autonomous agent side of things more than the machine learning way back in the day now. And I was really lucky. I studied under Dr. Joanna Bryson, who's a, a leading voice in kind of AI ethics. And she continues to influence me a lot to this day. I I read her recently talking about LLMs as like really sophisticated magic eight balls. And I was like, yeah, that is a really good explanation of what they are. And if you think about it, they're, you know, generative AI is good for some particular things. It's very easy to mistake it for general intelligence, because it's so clever at what it does do but I think we've got to remember that it's clever at what it does do. It's not clever at everything. And I think that's really fascinating. We're betting on it in a fairly big way. We've staffed a full team to work just on Gen AI and with the hope that it'll help us improve our efficiency by 30%. So for our customer service folks, our sales folks, we're we're really investing in that and in the tooling that will help them go from a blank page to something as quickly as possible. We're not taking the human out of the equation, but we're making it more of a checking and adapting role than a creation from scratch role i think we're starting to see that with our pilot of github copilot as well that we're starting to use in our engineering team too but i think one of the challenges and the reason it's got such hype is it looks so smart right but our head of ai did an example of he asked uh, ChatGPT to describe pleo in snoop Dogg terminology <laughs> and then it did it very well it was fascinating um but beyond synthesizing information in certain ways it's not yet good at decision making it's not yet good at thinking right and i think we've got to remember that blockchain was always a solution looking for a problem (laughs) and so i think it's continued to be a solution that was looking for a problem i think there's a risk with gen ai that it's a solution looking for a problem and i think matching that to the right problems is going to be the real interesting new challenge and then what was your last one? Cybersecurity.
1: Uh, cybersecurity, yeah, cyber but let's, let's play with cybersecurity a little bit in the intersection of both AI and open source as it comes to Plio. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, right now, you know, this is where maybe the, the, the Venn diagram of fintech, open source, cybersecurity, and AI come into play. At the end of the day, we have trust issues that are generated by AI. We have really crafty cybersecurity risks created yeah. by AI. We have the issue of integrating code into production code that comes from open source projects that, you know, are potentially risky in in different ways architecturally. And I just want to see how you reconcile the combination of those within the context of,
0: so I, I actually trust open source more than closed source. I, I trust the many eyes principle and the sunlight disinfects principle much more than the it's hidden so you can't figure it out. Like we have seen things where nobody had the source code get um, re- reverse engineered over and over and over again. And it's actually much easier to attack something that hasn't had that sunlight and that set of many eyes looking at it. Um, I, I know we've had some very high publicity exploits in recent years, but I don't think it's that surprising in many ways. And I don't think that those things being closed source would have made those exploits less likely to happen. I think it would have made them less likely to get patched. And so I'm not of the school of like, nothing should ever go wrong. I'm of the school of like, how well can you recover from it when it does? And I think that that operational resilience matters a lot more than anything else. So on the open source side, I'm pretty comfortable actually. And I think we're finding the regulators getting increasingly comfortable as they have more and more teams and companies under their purview that are using open source, that are getting used to that way of working and that way of of operating. The risks around AI, are a lot more about data privacy than anything else. I, I I do think you could have AI suggest bad code to you, but I think you need the same protections for secure code, whether it's AI written or human written, right? You need something as a safety net to say, whoa, hang on a second, you're sending something over in the clear that shouldn't be here, or should you really be logging this credit card number? No, No credit card number should ever be logged. That's not cool. What are you doing? And again, I think the human is still such a part of the process, you know, you've always got a second pair of eyes reviewing your pull request, if not two sets of eyes reviewing your pull request, somebody along that chain should pick it up. The more interesting thing is the attack vectors. So I think how can you make it more intelligent attacking is going to be really interesting. And we know that there's just so much energy behind ransomware and infiltration and all these kind of things that I that I think they will those bad actors will use anything that they can and so they absolutely are going to use ai to the fullest extent that they can um as uh, as quickly as they as they can as well and i think we'll we'll continue to have those kind of problems but you know cybersecurity our biggest risk is always the human factor like social engineering is still i think a bigger risk on most companies risk registers than you know your stupid password policy that makes people write it on a post it note and stick it in their desk like the fact that the doors don't open quickly enough when people use their pass, so they hold it open for each other. Those kind of things, I think, are actually much bigger breach risks than almost anything else. And so when we look at our risks by kind of likelihood and severity, the, the way everybody does, the big bad is something like a real data breach or ransomware or something like that. But a lot of the time, we're just as concerned about those social engineering risks and what social how we making it difficult.
1: Sadly, Gen AI augments social engineering. Yeah. Very scary. I, I have a, a couple of, of tools that say like, write, rewrite in my tone of voice. And I'm like, Jesus, it's scary. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, do you think a CTO should have cybersecurity studies in some formal way? I mean, like, I know that people believe studying or not studying is, that I don't want to like sort of get into the academics of studying, but take something like the CISSP or any other sort of, cybersecurity accreditations or studies? Do you think it's something that CTO should have?
0: We have to know enough to be a good leader and manager of whoever the specialist is in our teams. And so I think for some people, the level of depth that they need to feel comfortable is such that they would want to do that kind of certification. I think for some people, they want to understand the area. Some people have someone uh, who's that specialist, who's their CISO or, or whoever, who's just really good at explaining. And I think you can adapt to the situation you're in, right? I, I think you can figure out what you need. I think there's a broader question, which is you know, just a more general one of, as an engineering discipline, we're behind where a lot of other engineering disciplines are in terms of accreditations and similar, right? My dad was a mechanical engineer. My wife's an architect, a real one. She builds hospitals, not technical systems. And they are not only certified, they also have to, commit to and meet certain continuous development objectives and ongoing career learning and these kind of things and i think that the nature of software forces us to stay up to speed but we don't have the kind of industry accreditation approach that a lot of um of the others do i might even go so far as to say that sometimes accreditations are a counter signal Sometimes the more letters people have got after their name, the more likely they are to have very academic understanding, but not have practical and pragmatic. And That's uh, why uh,
1: I caveated that. I caveated that just because it, it can go both ways, right? You can end up being in a hole in a box. But I think it's, it, I think you answered it well, which is that you know it is something that you kind of have to conscientiously pursue. You can't just yeah. sort of delegate it and then and not understand it as a leader in this space. Yeah, there, you've got to
0: care about it for sure. I, I think just how. In detail, you have to care about it depends on your team.
1: Exactly. Well, I I wanted to thank you for your time because we've covered so much and there's a hell of a lot more I could ask and I would love to, but I know that you have to go and it's been absolutely eye-opening conversation with lots of really good takeaways for anybody who's listening. So with that, I just wanted to thank you for your time. And guys, if you want to reach out to me, I don't know if you you want people to reach out, Mary. I don't, I don't oh,
0: know. Oh, they totally can. I'm Geek underscore manager on Twitter, on Threads, on LinkedIn, everywhere I'm around. And social media tends to be the best way to get a hold of me. Thank you very much for having me. And if you'd like to chat further, I'd love to come back sometime. So just let me know.
1: Excellent. Well, with that, guys, thank you very much. And until next time.